Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Oh, also, I listened to those sick beats you dropped. <laughs> right? <laughs> the They're new so intro. Sick. Um, yeah, I can't wait to collab with that. That's going to be really fun you think for you me can... tomorrow. Great. You think you can make something I out of so. that? I think so. I don't see why not. Right. Um, the I don't even have words because I am not a percussionist, but like it gets a little funky, but I like it. Um, so, <laughs> yes. so we'll handle that. Because I couldn't figure out how to add any other goddamn instrument. It's <laughs> all right. So I was I just like, figure it out. all of the drums. Yeah, it all did. I laughed really hard when I heard all, all of the drums good. coming in. Good. Great. <laughs> it was great. Uh, it was good fun. Good fun. Okay. Yeah, it's like five tracks of drums yeah. on top of each other. Yep. Anyway. It's classic. Okay, you ready? Yes, I'm ready. I'm ready. You ready? Yep. I'm ready. Yep. Let's all right. do it. All right. Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock and together we are Hamlet and this week it's Much Ado 201. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more and also hey we're back season three. What up? Guess who's back? Back again. Oh god. Whamlet's back. Tell a friend. But like actually tell your friends. (laughs) Really do tell your friends. Yeah tell your friends. Um, so how was your summer, Aubrey? Long and hot. <laughs> it's fucking nice <laughs> for you. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I survived camp again. Um, and this time came out stronger. Uh, it was good. No, it was a good, good. good summer. Yeah, I had a good I'm time. Proud. How about you? Uh, my summer was not as long as yours was, sounds like. Uh, my summer's basically been over since July 1st, so that's a real thing in my life. But it was great. Um, I spent some time at the Folger doing dissertation research, and then I wrote my dissertation. So, you know, I mean, not the whole thing, right? I was going to say. Not the whole thing. That, that would be crazy even for me I to write I sat down and wrote it in a day. I'm just Hamlet. <laughs> no, but um, I mean, we're obviously, not obviously but I'm going to expose our secrets. We're we're recording this episode a couple of weeks before it's going to drop. Yes. But as of today, um, I have like 80% of my word count on this first chapter. And that's like 40% ahead of schedule. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. hi, I'm Jess Hamlet and I write things quickly, (laughs) I guess. Yeah. Um, that's why you do what you do and I do what I do. Yes. <laughs> Real. So yep. that's that's it. I also saw some shitty, shitty theater that we're going to talk about next week and then maybe later. Or maybe today I'll talk about some of it. I don't know. It's our podcast. We can do the fuck we want yeah, man. whenever we want to do it so um but real quick let's point out some things that are different for season three yes right we've got yes. so 
mostly this season is going to be 201s and 301s. Yeah, because um, we completed that canon. Yes, we did. We do still have some 101s in the pipeline, but they yes. will be um, not Shakespeare plays. Right. But it's going to be great. Uh, Wait, we also other have a, playwrights wrote plays? I know. I know. What? Just Thomas Middleton, though. Nobody else. Oh, right. Else. Yeah. He really just, cornered that non-Shakespeare he, market. Yeah. It's just him. He, yeah. And um, just him. Uh, but he is, like, half of the 101s we're doing. That's true. It's true. It's going to be a very so, Middleton-heavy season. Yes. Yeah. And as I say that, I am recalling our recording schedule, and I think none of the Middleton happens until the spring. So, mm. anyway. Whatever. Mm. It's not important. It's fine. We also, as our listeners will have just heard, have a new theme song. Yeah. That yeah, we do. Aubrey and I made together. <laughs> Sort Full disclosure, of, neither of us are musicians. Nope. nope. At all. Uh-uh. <laughs> garage band. Crushing it. Yep. Loving that garage band. Also love Jonathan Shue. But Dude, uh, check him out still, you know, for yeah, sure. Yeah, but like but season three, he, new things happening. Yeah. And we, we wanted something that was created just for us, so we created True. it. True. Like, if you catch John Shue on tour, like, you might hear him play the song that, you know, we stole the theme track from, so. Didn't we, steal. We didn't steal. We didn't permission. steal. He gave, he gave it to me. He's my friend. He's my very yeah. good, very good friend. <laughs> he gave it to me. But yeah. yes. Yes. You might be at a John yeah. Shue concert one day and be like, is that their Hurley Burley theme song? Well, did they sample from him? Yeah. We sure did. Early days. Early days. Yeah. It's our in our very deep in our catalog. Youth. Yes, the halcyon days of mm. our youth. Yes, salad days. You might even mm. say. Mm. You might. I mean, you might. I would not say that. I've ever, been very exposed to so Cleopatra. much Cleopatra, yeah. and by very exposed, I mean literally very exposed to lots of Cleopatra this summer. Mm. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> so, moving on. Moving on. Um, things are a little different for 201 level episodes. So, let, I'm going to let Jess refresh your memory. Oh, yeah. So, for 201 level episodes, we operate on the assumption that you are familiar with the play. So, we don't do a synopsis and we just kind of dive into uh, narrow and deep stuff, a couple things that we just kind of want to talk about. And we assume that you know enough about the play to be able to hang with our conversation. Um, However, if you are a newbie to Much Ado, or you just need to refresh your memory, or you are listening to this podcast in lieu of reading the play for your class... Shame, shame, I know your shame name. On you. Uh, you can also go listen to episode 17 in season one, which is our Much Ado 101 episode, which is also like awesome, yes. probably. I don't remember anything we said in it, but it was smart and great, and we're smart and great. I mean, talk about deep in the catalog. That was a while was ago. Two years ago. Yeah. Two years. Yeah. Yep. So much yep. has happened. Um, it was a good episode, though. I just know it. So anyway, uh, so narrow and deep. What that means is uh, for the 201 level episodes, we go deep diving in the deep sea of a play on a couple of topics. Um, and today we are talking about truth. Oh, <laughs> that's rather broad, really. Um, mm-hmm. Truth <laughs> and character backstories. But first... We also revisit a rhetorical device of the week. Yeah. 
So in our 101 episodes, what we do is we discuss definitions of rhetorical devices and we give examples. At the 201 level, we will revisit a device that we've already done in a 101 Shakespeare episode um, and discuss the uses or possible characterizations of that particular device in performance. Yes. So fucking take it away. Yeah. So in our 101 episodes, we say over and over again that identifying rhetoric helps us understand a character or give us a possible line reading. Uh, But what does that actually mean? So to answer that question, we need to take a look at the specific context in which the device is used and think about the kind of device that it is. This week, we are revisiting anadiplosis. Um, Fun fact, when I was looking at our notes to make this episode... It says in our ideas sheet for future episodes that this device must be the one that we oh, use yeah. for this play. And then by the time for, I went sure. searching for it, I totally could not remember why. Could not. And then I, I had a lot um, of trouble actually until finding... Until you got to Benedict's right. speech. <laughs> Benedict's speech? I, uh, Am I see, not I thinking f- about anadiplosis? Am I thinking about what's the... It's. Um, Oh, so are you the one that made this note? Because I was thinking, Jesus passed, Aubrey. What were you thinking? Because I couldn't find it. Um, I mean, I did eventually uh, find some. Until all graces come in one woman, one woman will not come in my whatever, that speech. Oh, sure. That particular line, yes. And I uh, will jump to that line as well. But, like, I was thinking about the lines that preceded that of, like, Sure. Virtuous or on whatever, whatever. Um, I'll, I'll get there and we can pick that apart. Right. But anyway, um, to refresh your memory from long, long ago when we, I think one of the Richards was a, when we originally introduced anadiplosis, uh, it is the repetition of endings at the beginning of the next line. So it's the repetition of a last word or phrase from the previous line uh, at, at the beginning of the next line. So some examples I found of that Um, which I think are quite telling for this play, actually, are first in Act 1, Scene 1. And I'm looking at the New Oxford here, so it's uh, lines 98 to 105, which, of course, is the first skirmish of wits between Benedict and Beatrice. And it basically, Benedict sets him up and Beatrice knocks him down, uh, which is how it should be, really. Um, So, for example... Benedict says, and this is after she's already had the opening salvo of, you know, uh, and he says, my dear lady disdain, are you yet living? It's that part um, that Kenneth Branagh and uh, Emma Thompson are like seared into my brain having this conversation. Benedict says, God keep your ladyship still in that mind. So some gentleman or other shall escape a predestinate scratched face. Beatrice, scratching could not make it worse. And twere such a face as yours were Benedict. Well, you are a rare parrot teacher. Beatrice, a bird of my tongue is better than a beast of yours. Benedict, I would my horse have the speed of your tongue, and so a good continuer, but keep your way, a god's name, I have done. Beatrice, you always end with a jade's trick, I know you of old. So she's picking up on the on the ideas that he has brought up in the previous line, and then spinning them around on him. Uh, and then jump all the way to the end of the play. Well, actually, we're going to take a detour in uh, Benedict's gulling scene, apparently. That I missed. Okay. So in Act 2, Scene 3, Benedict's gulling, right before he gets gulled, actually, he's musing to himself on why any of his friends who have half a brain would fall in love. You know the one. He says, One woman is fair, yet I am well. Another wise, yet I am well. Another virtuous, yet I am well. Great epistrophe here. 
mm-hmm. uh, repetitions of endings. But till all graces be in one woman, one woman shall not come in my grace. So there's the anadiplosis, uh, the repetition of the one woman. Rich she shall be, that's certain, wise or I'll none, virtuous or I'll never cheapen her, fair or I'll never look on her, mild or come not near me, noble or not I for an angel, of good discourse, an excellent musician, her hair should be what color please God. Ha ha ha, here they come. Okay, so that's a good, uh, a brief but telling example again. And it's, I've found throughout this play, the repetitions of ends at the beginning often come from Benedict, often as a punchline. Hmm about that okay the next pretty good example i found was in the post-courtship flirting that beatrice and benedict do in act five scene two it's after he's like musing to himself about what a terrible poet he is and then beatrice comes in and he says sweet beatrice wouldst thou come when i called thee she says yea senor and depart when you bid me he says oh but stay till then she says then is spoken Fare you well, and yet ere I go, let me go with that I came, which uh, is with knowing what hath passed between you and Claudio. He says, only foul words, and thereupon I will kiss thee. She says, foul words is but foul wind, and foul wind is but foul breath, and foul breath is noisome. Therefore, I will depart unkissed. So from Beatrice, that's a pretty good example of anadiplosis. Um, Again, used as a punchline. So... We get the repetition uh, often shared between two characters, usually shared with Benedict, and it tells us that they're listening to each other very intently, um, as really one has to do in a skirmish of wits or in any kind of flirting um, that leads to this kind of, well, in many productions, it leads to smooching, I mean, if we're honest. Well, not in the first one, but in the second instance, definitely. So so I think here, you know, we can see, and you can see this in a lot of different, it's kind of layered in with stichomythia, right? That quick back and forth. A lot of times Shakespeare does this between lovers and they grab, they repeat each other's last words and phrases and hurl them back at each other, right? Uh, and in one instance, you know, at the beginning of this play, it's used rather aggressively, uh, and mean, kind of mean-spirited, and the second time it's used much more lovingly, much more gently, um, but it still is that back and forth and that wordplay, which for these characters I think arguably counts as foreplay. So, you know, those are some playable options, I think, and, and of course any repetition, uh, any rhetorical device that is repetition is sort of an invitation to give different um, feeling, different color to each time you repeat that word and phrase. Right to, to lend it emphasis and really make sure that your listeners hear it. So, dun 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 dun. That's the one. That's the that's anadiplosis. Now I remember why we said it needed to be that. But right there it is. So, let's take it on to some discussion topics. Jess's bag. Yeah. Okay. So I would like to talk about truth in this play, and. In particularly, in particularly, in particular, the kind of truth that is embodied within a person's actual body, mostly specifically hero. Okay, so at the ver 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 beginning of the play, ver ver beginning, when all of the homies arrive. In Messina. I am loving this concept of Much Ado About Nothing, BT dubs. <laughs> All the homies gather in Leonardo's hood <laughs> and 
and they have a big old turn up. I mean, it's great. yes, like <laughs> ten ten would watch. Yep. Okay, so they all show up, right? And um, Don Pedro, the Duke, says to Leonato. Yeah. He says, uh, "I think this is your daughter." Right, hero standing there, and he's like, "Oh, you know, this she must be your daughter, because mm-hmm. maybe I haven't been here in a while. Maybe she's grown up, but maybe I've never been here. I don't know." Um, and Leonardo says, "I think the line that Leonardo says is her mother hath many times told me so." That is what he says. Yes, I've seen um, this play which... way too many times. <laughs> what? Way so too many I, times. I have always thought that that's just sort of a hilarious joke, right? Like, it doesn't, it never, it never once occurred to me, not once, that he may actually have doubts about her parentage and is casting them in that way, right? That's a theory. Had never occurred to me. And then, a couple of weeks ago, super playable, Super playable. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, my good friend Aaron Weinberg, um, who was part of my SAA group, she so she's working on a paper about Much Ado and this kind of thing, like what is the truth in the play and who gets to control the truth. Spoiler alert, it's men. Uh, And so she'd finished this paper and had very generously offered to let me read it and I read it and it blew my goddamn mind and it's so fucking good and I can't wait until it gets published somewhere and y'all can fucking read it because Jesus Christ this woman is going to single-handedly take down the patriarchy um it's so good anyway so she opens her paper with this kind of assertion that Leonardo is actually putting out there in the world in front of the Duke his doubts about being Hero's father, which blew my mind hole, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. So here we go. So this is the first case, right? This is Act One, Scene One, Line a hundred in the Arden. It is the hundredth line of the play. So, you know, five minutes into the show, we get a man, a senior man, perhaps the most senior man on the stage, making a bold, brazen comment to the goddamn Duke that maybe his daughter isn't actually his daughter. Prince. Prince. Sure. Negligible difference, but... Right. Don Pedro's a prince. Okay. Cool. Sorry. Sorry. The ruler of the place. Yes. (laughs) Sorry. He's in charge, which has has a well it's maybe it's maybe not the best choice, right? Because by acknowledging that she might not be his daughter or even believing in any way that she might not be his daughter, um, he makes it harder for her to get married, which is why I sort of always thought that this was a joke. Um, but you know what they say about jokes, especially self-deprecating ones. There's often a kernel of truth in there. So this is how we start the play. Moving on, the there's the whole, it's not a bed trick, but it's kind of a bed trick. That thing, right? The, the let's believe, yeah. let's make 
Claudio believe that he is seeing Hero fuck someone else the night before our wedding. Yeah. Um, it's orchestrated by John John. It's like, I don't know, bed trick is the closest word I have for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I can kind of get it's the Margaret Baraccio yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. But so, so that scene is famously not staged in the play. Right. And yet... Kenneth Branagh, Joss Whedon. Uh-huh. It gets staged, right? It gets staged a lot. And that's a choice. And I think it's a real bad one. But that's a, a whole separate bag of worms that we don't need to talk about today. Claudio watches this happen, right? Um, mm-hmm. Whoever reports on it after the fact. or Conrad and Baraccio. Yeah, do you happen to know what scene that is? Uh, somewhere in Act 2, it's the Dogberry stuff with the night, the Night's Watch. Oh, yeah, here it is. Okay, so it's Act 2, Scene 2, in the Arden, like, about line 30. Okay. So Baraccio says, Find me a meet hour to draw Don Pedro and the Count Claudio alone. Tell them that you know that Hero loves me. Intend a kind of zeal both to the prince and Claudio, as in love of your brother's honor, who hath made this match, and his friend's reputation, who is thus like to be cousined with the semblance of a maid, that you have discovered thus. They will scarcely believe this without trial. Offer them instances, which shall bear no less likelihood than to see me at her chamber window. Hear me call Margaret Hero. Hear Margaret term me Claudio. Claudio, and bring them to see this the very night before the intended wedding, etc., etc. So the whole crux of this, right, is Baraccio and Margaret are going to hit it in the balcony or wherever, in the window, in the garden, somewhere seeable. Somewhere visible. Yep. That's the word. Not seeable. (laughs) That's not a word. I'm making (laughs) shit up. And Baraccio is going to call Margaret Hero. But Hero, not Hero, Margaret is going to call Baraccio Claudio. Kinky. They like role play. Okay, yes. Sorry. But <laughs> Claudio is going to watch this right. and hear Hero, in quotes, Hero, call someone his name. Oh, right. But he will know. That he is not, in fact, having sex with Hero in that moment because right. Why would he, he can't write. It's it's weird. I First of all, never interrogated that before. I know. Oh, God wow. bless okay. my friend Aaron Weinberg for pointing this out to me. I just wow. Um, I just never put thought on yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, like that's you. You have you. You fucked up, Baraccio. That you made a mistake. Right. It's a weird little plot hole. <laughs> but also, like Claudio believes it so easily. And discounts the fact that he knows that he didn't sleep with Hero, but just because he sees someone who is being called Hero, he assumes that it actually is Hero, even though the person being called Claudio is for sure not Claudio because he's Claudio, right? Right. right. What a dummy. I mean... Claudio's a giant bag of dicks. We know how I feel about this. Yes. He okay. can fuck all the way off forever. Kill Claudio. Yes. Good goddamn. And get that shit tattooed on my knuckles. Yes. Kill yes. Claudio. Asked fuck. and answered, Your Honor. Okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what the fuck? Right? Like, what the fuck Indeed, are law. you doing? And like, how... So you see how this feeds into the creation of truth in the play and how it's never 
the actual truth and how it's always men's truth. Because again, right, then we have the wedding in act whatever, three or four, um, where Claudio accuses Hero of being a whore and she denies it and no one fucking believes her. And they sort of take as proof that like, oh, well, Beatrice didn't sleep with you last night, so... I guess we don't care about the thousand nights before that, that she totally slept with you every night and you never did anything. And she, you know, we trust her word on that. Right. But one night, one single night. Yeah. So, and then Leonardo immediately, I mean, doesn't even question it, right? Doesn't even question it. Right. Disowns her, cast her out. Do not live, hero. Do not live. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Like, and why? Good fucking God, why are women's stories not their own? And now Girl, I, I don't myself know. into a lather over this. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. I got nothing to say to that. Yeah. So, but I mean, it. You know, when you when you think about it, when you put pressure on any of this for more than a second, the play is anger making right Mm -hmm. like you're angry now I'm angry now we're all angry now I hope our Mm -hmm. listeners are angry now um (laughs) it's I mean it is also very funny and it also you know ends happily I guess oh for one couple for sure yeah but like (laughs) why why are women never allowed to matter? And why is the truth that we know in our goddamn bodies never good enough? So. I'm just going to let that hang out there. Yep. Because uh, um, I don't know. Yeah. So, again, I want to say that uh, these these ideas and moments were pointed out to me by my friend Aaron Weinberg. Um, who wrote an incredible paper on this, which I hope will get published soon Uh, and you can all read it and if you happen to be in Canada uh, that is where Erin Weinberg also is and you should maybe look her up and become her friend and give her all of the jobs and publish everything she writes forever and um, just put her in charge of things because she's amazing we should have her on the pod is what we should do we should we should <sighs> yep. Yeah. Agreed. So that's what I have to say about that. Word. Sort of dovetailing on that a little bit. I, I was going back and forth about what I wanted to talk about uh, regarding Much Ado. And I, I really, I just have a question that I don't have much of an answer to, which is that like, and bear in mind, I've been with campers all summer. So like, I've seen a lot of you know, in their audition forms before they come to camp, we ask them, what's your dream role? Or like, what character do you most identify with? And like, hands down, like almost all female campers or female identifying campers say Beatrice. Hmm. And, and it's a thing like, you know, and even I, to a certain extent, like really identify with her and she and Beatrice as a character is held up as like strong, you know, not shrewish, not like Kate, because she doesn't have Kate's rage, but like strong female, you know, 
who hangs with the boys and can give as good as she gets. And blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? Um, and, and I often wonder, like, why, why does everybody want to be Beatrice when there's also Margaret? Or, you know, Volumnia. Of Anjou, not in this play. Yeah, no. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, what? In all of Shakespeare's canon, sorry, not not Margaret of this play. Although, she can kind of hold Messina. her own, too, and Margaret of Messina can definitely get it. Um, <laughs> I was like, like, what a weird comparison. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I should have been more you. clear. I, Margaret, Margaret of Anjou, yes, or Volumnia, or, like, some other powerhouse lady, or, like, Tamara, right? Um Although I think Beatrice is like the milder, uh, in a way, what's the word? Not castrated, but like hobbled version of all those women because she doesn't have the rage, right? She's got like this prickly sort of wit, um, but then she is overcome by it in the end without much taming. I don't, I don't know. It's just something I, I was thinking about, but I didn't have like fully formulated thoughts on it. It's just something I wonder about. Like, why does every woman want to be Beatrice? Why does every woman seem to want to be in that love story of like hating the guy and then falling in love with the guy because your passion is like, because your hate for each other really is just passion, you know? Um, Because that's a a rom-com trope as old as time. Yeah. I wonder if it's because she is perhaps the most autonomous of the sort of witty loquacious heroines right because Imogen is kind of waifish anyway um, and is under the thumb of father husband father yeah Um, Yeah. Rosalind is I mean she might be the she's kind of up there with Beatrice on the autonomy scale you know also has some some of that autonomy taken away, right? She gets banished and right. Um yeah, I don't I don't know. Yeah, that's that's sort of my only Yeah, I don't know. I just wonder with what you're saying, you know, what you brought up with um Aaron Weinberg's ideas about embodied truth. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if there's like a link to that in some way of like I don't know. And especially since it's like a male playwright creating these characters and like overall it's a man's story. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) it's not just the male character's story. It's Shakespeare's. Um, So I I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a pretzel and a mind not, but anyway, um, over, over to my corner where what I'm actually (laughs) going to talk about, uh, which is not, not a terrible segue uh, into what I wanted to talk about, which is backstories. So, This play is super fun for actors to craft backstories. And for those who are not familiar, backstories are the lives that we actors create for characters off the page, totally extra textual, that help us embody uh, a character more fully on stage. It's sometimes a useful exercise for an actor because it helps you feel, it helps the character feel more rounded, more fleshed out. uh, and, And they don't do anyone any good really, except for the actors. For the most part, because you can't uh, necessarily play a backstory um, without obscuring the text, right? You can't play it so much except through like coloring your words and giving your phrasing a, a different weight based on what you've concocted uh, and and how you interact with the other actors in the play. So if you and another actor have agreed on a backstory, like I would highly recommend Beatrice and Benedict, 
concocting a, a backstory together so that you're in agreement. Your language can be more loaded and full of significance between you. Um, but again, you can't guarantee that the audience will read into that as you do. Um, they will probably get the sense of something you have going on, but it's not necessarily going to be interpreted the way you want. So like backstories are, are a little bit of a, a masturbatory exercise, but but also useful um, if if uh, as a production team, everybody kind of buys into the same story. And often this can feed into, um, you know, location, time and place of a production. Right. And everybody is given sort of a common backstory, particularly if you're going outside of the early modern period. Right. And, and doing the play at, at another time and place. Um, so it, it helps, right? Uh, but in Much Ado, in particular, I have seen and, and heard um, Shakespeare hints at a ton of backstories between characters and like relationships between characters. It's very paralyptical, actually. Through their own dialogue, right? We learn about the bad blood between Don Pedro and Don John and how Don John is newly reconciled to Don Pedro and like, ooh, what is that? Like, what happened there? You know, and the liaison between Beatrice and Benedict. There are several comments between the two of them where, you know, Beatrice says, I know you of old. He lent me his heart for a while. Once he played upon me with false dice, da, da, da. Like, so there are allusions there um, that I feel like just are begging for actors to create a, a backstory to figure out what the hell that is, right? Even Benedict's friendship with Claudio, how they befriended each other as soldiers when Claudio is clearly less mature, I'm not going to say younger necessarily, but not as mature uh, or as jaded as Benedict, right? How'd they even become friends? Uh, how does Beatrice know that Benedict has a new best friend every time he comes home from the wars? Like, what is going on there? Do all of his friends die in battle? Like, what? I, I don't know. Um, you know, how is Don? How do Don Pedro and Leonardo know each other? Because they clearly do, right? What's their backstory? Um, the Baraccio and Margaret thing, which now even more, Jess, has made me feel like, Okay, they've had a thing going on for a while. Uh -huh. Margaret is Margaret seems to be cool with calling Baraccio by other names. Like Baraccio's pretty confident in that. So like what is that about? Right? Uh -huh. Kinda great. Kinda great. So so this play I, I think more so explicitly kind of begs for actors to craft uh, something, you know, extra textual for themselves, right? And, and again, a backstory, crafting a backstory. Maybe nobody gets it but you, the actor, but it still helps you feel more solid when you create a character, when you say their words, to feel like you kind of know what's going on and has gone on in their past. Um, it's, a, it's a fun exercise to do. Uh, and, and in each production, an actor will want to flesh out their backstories, and some productions will help you more than others. Like I said, you know, if your entire production is like, World War One, you know, post World War One, much ado, then everybody has a very similar, you know, all the soldiers are coming back from a really terrible war and whatever. And there's a lot of uh, backstory that they, they production generally can give you. Um, for example, though, just some quick examples, Joss Whedon's Much Ado basically gives you an entire like dumb show of Beatrice and Benedict's tryst and breakup before anybody even starts talking. Uh, like it shows in these like black and white artsy fartsy clips you know, of them like screwing and then breaking up and fighting and whatever. Uh, and then uh, the most recent production of Much Ado that I saw uh, in Oregon Shakespeare Festival had showed Don John in a wheelchair. Um, now, to be fair, I can't remember if that actor actually is a wheelchair bound actor or if that was just a production choice, but it became part of the reason that he was um, a moody little prick. Uh, because it, they made it very clear that he had been, like, wounded in war, you know, uh, and he was lashing out, right? Um, 
so so you know sometimes like those are some examples of of some backstory and like how people came to be the way they are um but what's really fun is if anybody has a new oxford handy their their little notes their little margin notes uh are pretty much all production choices and the much ado stuff is really great for this backstory type of thing which i don't necessarily agree with this stuff but since this edition seems to be really heavily um relying on production choices and production history it's kind of helpful. So here's one. Don John is sometimes portrayed as a man who literally struggles to speak, sometimes stammering in his delivery of lines, right? Uh, and that's, of course, at the moment where Don John says, I'm not of many words, but I thank you. Uh, another example of these marginal production notes is some performances emphasize a potentially homosexual relationship and closeness between the prince and Claudio, which, whoa, whoa, I'd never thought of that, but apparently somebody did. Um, I, although the prince being gay is a production choice I definitely have seen before, just not gay for Claudio. Um, John is sometimes portrayed as being in love with Hero or as a repressed gay man himself. Interesting. Uh, that's a choice. Uh, another one. Some productions highlighting the earlier love affair between Beatrice and Benedict emphasize Beatrice's anger and lingering emotional pain in this speech. And that's, of course, her line where she's like, uh, a double heart for his single one, bloody bloody blah during the ball. Uh, and lastly, some productions use this line to suggest that Margaret may have worn this garment with Baraccio, and thus that her response here is motivated in part out of guilt. And this is the often cut little snippet of the scene where Hero and Margaret are like arguing about what wedding clothes Hero's gonna wear. And Margaret's like, no, don't wear this one, no. So they're saying here that there's some guilt. So so the new Oxford, if you're interested in, in crafting a little bit of backstory, it's interesting to see what, what other productions have come up with. Uh, and also, I just thought it might be fun, Jess, if you wanna play with me really quickly, to like craft some backstories of our own for some characters. I don't know, like, what happened between Beatrice and Benedict? What is the deal between Don John and Don Pedro? Um, like, I don't know. Yeah, are there rules on how we do that? Or no, I no. just need to like. I have be no creative. rules. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't care. Like, uh, why did? Why do you think Beatrice and Benedict broke up? What happened the first time around? Hmm? I mean, I think Benedict's a fuckboy. Mm. Mm-hmm. So maybe was this when they were younger? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, okay. he went off to war and, like, maybe matured, but, like, didn't really mature, but, yeah. like, matured enough. But he definitely ghosted on her. Yeah. And used the war as an excuse. What a prick. Okay. Uh, I absolutely love that Baraccio and Margaret are kinky for each other. Um, I think that's fantastic. Uh, that's a fun choice. Let's see. What happened between Don John and Don Pedro that they That's, fell out in the first place? They he like Don John goes to war against Don Pedro. Isn't that in the text? That he made war on his brother? Yeah, like this is the the war that they're coming home from is Don I John had led some kind of rebellion. Read it that way. No. I don't I, I don't know. I thought that was in the text, but maybe I well, hey, I got to know now. Hey, no. I mean, I got to know now. It would be in that first scene. Maybe not. Maybe I a thousand percent made that up. Yeah, see, I think it's kind of vague. Because Leonardo Leonardo definitely goes out of his way to welcome right. John, right? right. Um, when does John John 
come back and like talk on his own. Where are you at, Don John? Yeah, and then, well, and then What's-His-Face has that line about you're newly reconciled to your brother, don't make trouble yet, you know. But as far as I know, never says why specifically. Oh, yeah. So it's uh, 1-3, line, like, 20-ish. Conrad says, you have of late stood out against your brother. Yeah. Which... I do believe some people have taken to interpret as he like led some kind of rebellion. Um, oh, see, I never however, read it that way. I, I, well, I don't think it's clear. I think, yeah. I think there are interpretations to be made. And that okay. is why I thought what I thought, because someone maybe once suggested it to me and I was like, Oh, that's great. Um, Hmm. Oh yeah. So and the and the footnote even in the Arden says so it stood out against and then it's glossed as defied, fallen out with, um, in and then in parentheses Don Pedro's recent military battle was with Don John. Oh. So the Arden at least is taking that stance. The Arden thinks so. Well, yeah. but the Arden don't is say, a killer of mystery. They don't say anything <laughs> else about like where else we can find information about that. Wow. So. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. And okay. once again, the Arden comes through with the footnotes and we rabbit hold. <laughs> True. We did. Yeah. I mean, that is interesting. I, I have literally never seen a production that, that strongly enough implied that Mm-mm. to me. No. no, me either. Yeah. Like I, wow. That is a choice. That's an interesting choice for a backstory. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, uh-huh. I, I do think it, if you if you think already that Don John has made some war against Don Pedro, it makes a lot more sense why he does what he does and right. why he runs away at the end. And why he says what he says about, I am trusted with a muzzle and enfranchised with a clog. Yeah. Like he's being brought back as a prisoner of war. Yeah. That makes yep. so much more sense. Yeah. And again, uh-huh. I have never seen a production that made that clear. Not ever. Well, I'm not sure. That's crazy. How how playable that is that's true that's that's tough because it's backstory nuance yeah unless, unless they he were already in like chains exactly unless he were yeah. already literally in chains like a prisoner yeah. of war which never maybe know. a romantic comedy director does right. not want to start their play with someone right. in chains i don't know huh okay yeah well, what turned into a lighthearted game became <laughs> became a deep, a deeper dive than I ever anticipated into the backstory of Don Pedro and Don John. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, let's talk some gossip. Um, mm-hmm. Our our two hundred one level gossip is is pretty play centric, so it's very much ado centered this week. So here's a bunch of productions coming your way for the remainder of 2019 and the beginning of 2020. August, August. Right. All of the 2019 ones are done. Fucking A, man. Well, I apologize. This list is going to be way shorter than I thought. Yep. Damn. Okay. We're just going to start that over. So here are some Much Ado productions that apparently all ended for 2019, but here's some for 2020. Yeah. So if you are in Ohio in the spring... Um, you can see it at the Great Lakes Theater in Cleveland, March 27th through April 11th. Yeah. If you're in the D.C. area, you can see it at the Shakespeare Theater Company, May 5th to June 14th of 2020. 
if you remain in the D.C. area, you can see it at Chesapeake Shakespeare Company in Baltimore, uh, June 19th to July 26th of next year. Great. If you're in Dallas, uh, Dallas Tejas, uh, you can see it at Shakespeare Dallas in the summer of 2020. And also, most recently, um, we just announced, we, the ASC, just announced that it's going to be part of our Actors Renaissance season in 2020. So you can see it at some point it's the opener from, isn't it it in better january. be the canyon yeah. the the comedy really should be so probably from yeah. january so, 2020 on until so. what end of march maybe yeah first pretty much april. beginning of Somewhere april yeah yeah cool yeah it's gonna be a ren show it's gonna be really um, exciting two women cast as beatrice and benedict shut up is that for real yeah it's jessica yeah. and it's meg. gonna be jessica williams and meg rogers as Benedict and Beatrice, respectively. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Um, <laughs> well, that gossip segment was a lot shorter. Then in that case, take us home. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. So again, uh, if you are interested in learning more about my dear friend, Erin Weinberg, and the work she does, you can follow her on Twitter at The Bardolator. It's B-A-R-D-O-L-A-T-O-R. Or you can visit her website at DrAaronWeinberg.com. That's dr Aaron, like the girl's name, and Weinberg is W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G dot com. Also, she was born on April 23rd. That's amazing. That's Shakespeare's birthday. (laughs) Look at the things I'm learning about my friend Aaron by looking at her Twitter profile. Tune in next week for Measure for Measure 201. Yeah. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Whamlet out. Whamlet out. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For show notes and other fun stuff, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. You can email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. I would hate to do that, and I do mind. Fuck Duchess of Malfi. Fuck Webster. Fuck this podcast. Yeah, it's, it's cool. I want to cry. Okay. <laughs> oh, it was a joke. <laughs> God, so Aubrey. Me.